0: Download the Viator app now and use code VIATOR10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: I hope Diane Feinstein is listening to this episode of The Weeds. Is all I can say.
2: Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here today with Ezra Klein. um, And we wanted to talk about the Senate and about Mitch McConnell, um, things that are on people's minds lately, uh, that that Ezra, you know, recently had a, a great piece about sort of McConnell and and his role in the evolution of the Senate. I had some thoughts about it, but I think I will start off by just letting Ezra explain. You know, what's 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 your take on this, and and how did you come to sort of see McConnell's role this way?
1: So I, I've been thinking about McConnell for years because he he often ends up being the single most both important and honest player in legislative politics, the person who is explaining what the incentives of the institutions actually are as other people more or less follow them, but pretend to be resisting them or don't or or, or whatever it might be. So the past couple of months, um, and, and people know this from the filibuster episode, I've been talking to particularly Senate Democrats about the filibuster. and And I mentioned there that I was struck to see the ice cracking on how a lot of moderate Democrats or, you know, mainstream Democrats were talking about the filibuster, that people who had always been completely opposed to its abolition or change or reform were suddenly saying to me, you know, something may need to change here. Um, Joe Biden, when I asked him about the filibuster, he said, well, we'll see how obstreperous the Republicans are. And in, in all these cases, the answer is really the same. People were willing to rethink the Senate because of Mitch McConnell. Like they all said this to me, that they just Understood, and this is a really, I think, underappreciated ideological/slash procedural difference from 2009, when Democrats came in with the, the the majority around Obama. In 2009, Senate Democrats believed, and Barack Obama believed. They could get the Senate to work the way it had in the past. Um, that Max Baucus, the Senate Finance Chairman for the Democrats back then, could cut a deal with uh, Republican uh, Ranking Member Chuck Grassley, and that's how they would do healthcare. And that, like Ted Kennedy, would cut a deal with Orrin Hatch on something else, and that's how they would do, you know, whatever it might be. And it was going to go down the the line that way. And McConnell disabused them of that understanding of the Senate over the course of eight years. It just is gone. None of them believe, um, including the people who used to think that way, that you can get anything done by trying to get uh, support from the Republican Party when you're a Democratic majority. So that was happening here in the background in, I think, a really important way. And then you get Garland, of course which was the single most radicalizing thing that happened in the Senate to Democrats and maybe in the country, even more so than, than Trump in a way, to Democrats during this period. But now you have Ginsburg and the post-Ginsburg reversal of the McConnell rule. McConnell last time says that the American people deserve a voice in who the next nominee will be. And so we're going to wait for the election. Um, and this year says, haha, just kidding. And in the aftermath of that, what Democrats are now considering in very serious ways, I think, is really necessary. Um, not just getting rid of the filibuster, but D.C. and Puerto Rico, which I hate it when that is framed as some kind of reprisal mechanism, like residents of D.C. and Puerto Rico deserve representation because they're um, American citizens, Um, but also potentially uh, adding justices to the Supreme Court if McConnell goes through with this, because if McConnell says the only thing that matters on the court is the power you have to make appointments, well, they have a way of doing that, too, if they take the majority. And and the big point I want to make on all this is that there is a way of framing this as an endless, like, tit for tat. And, and that's sort of true. There's a, a political scientist named Stephen Smith who calls it Senate syndrome, the ways in which um, you have this endless pattern of the minority finds new ways to obstruct and then the majority finds new ways to restrict that obstruction. And that's been accelerating in recent years. But I think the bigger context here is that McConnell is a handmaiden for a change that is, needy, that is needed to happen, a confrontation, even a crisis that is needed to happen. And that doesn't mean it will turn out well. It may not. But we are in a transition between different equilibriums of how American politics worked. We are in the transition between the equilibrium that dominated through the 20th century, in which the two parties uh, were ideologically and demographically quite mixed. They could work together on all kinds of issues. This is the Senate that Joe Biden speaks of with such fondness. And in that Senate, Norms were important, traditions were important, rules were often not used to their fullest extent. Um, the filibuster was more powerful in the 20th century than it is today. You needed a two-thirds vote for for most of that period to shut it off, but it wasn't used because the norms encouraged senators to be restrained in how they did it. On Supreme Court appointments, these have always been very important votes. But the tradition was that the, the opposition party would vote to confirm a uh, the majority party's nominee or the white house's nominee so long as that nominee was qualified and not completely extreme and that has fallen as well In, in a way that makes sense it's a very ideologically important vote so why would you confirm the opposition party's nominee so all this has been happening and i think what we're seeing with mcconnell who is in some ways a very weak Senate leader, I think maybe wanted to be something different, but has ended up sort of very much submitting to these forces to keep his seat, to to keep the Republican Party together. He's been this real accelerant for polarization in, in the Senate. And the... He's had a big effect on the Senate himself as a leader in rules changes he's made, in, in stratagems he's pioneered. But I really do think in an optimistic possibility, not an optimistic prediction here, I really think that his biggest effect on the Senate may in the long term be that he convinces Democrats to democratize the Senate and through the Senate and, and through what can then pass American politics and kind of like bring a, a period in American politics that is more fit for an era of polarized parties, which is in a period like that, you need majorities to be able to govern so they can like run on things, get the thing done, and then run for re-election on the thing. And they weren't gonna do that. It is only McConnell. It is like that is his singular contribution in being so bald-faced and cynical and aggressive and calling himself the Grim Reaper in the way he has screwed them over again and again, he has convinced them that they cannot hold on to the old ways of doing things. And he has like been the only force capable of moving Democrats into actually rethinking like the fundamentals of how the Senate might work. Again, this may not be how it comes to pass. We may just collapse into crisis. But but this is my optimistic story right now. I There's a part of me that thinks this is a confrontation we need to have. And even more than that, a lesson Democrats have needed to learn.
2: I think, you know, when we talk about lessons learned here, I, I think it's useful to sort of put a pin in a, in a distinction here, because one thing about the Senate is its unusual rules of parliamentary procedure. And another thing about the Senate is its unusual apportionment. And these are distinct attributes of the United States Senate, right? Around the world, typically a legislature operates under a one-person, one-vote rule. Uh, I I don't want to say it's unheard of uh, to have um, a disproportionate upper house of legislature. But another thing you see um, in in comparative studies is that normally uh, countries that have a non-proportionate upper house, countries like Australia, countries like Switzerland, um, the upper house is less powerful. Than the lower house, but in America, the Senate is more powerful than the House because of the advice and consent rules, right? If you if you had to pick only one body to control, you would want the Senate, uh, and the Senate is also more disproportionate than the Australian Senate uh, or the the German um, I forget what it's called Bundesrat I think so it's it's a very unusual in terms of its apportionment right and power. Then separately. It has this goofball uh, procedural norms uh, that, that that you were talking about with with the filibuster, and I think it's I think it's useful in this regard to take a, a sort of trip down down memory lane. Uh, you you always like to talk about the the Medicare vote count, um, which was yes. in an era of strong filibusters, but the uh, the Johnson administration, uh, you know, they just in their internal documents they were counting to fifty, right?
1: Like the the view was yeah. Do you want me to tell the story? It is my favorite story.
2: Yeah. So it's like it's not a lynching bill. So
1: yeah. So um, this is actually and I, I want to give I want to give credit here is David Brookman, a political scientist at Berkeley, who actually turned me t- found this document and sent it to me way back in, in my Washington Post days. But there is this amazing memo that Mike Manatos, who is the Senate liaison, so the person who runs Senate relations for President Lyndon Johnson. So Lyndon Johnson. Like knows the Senate pretty well, gets a good guy to run it from. So Mike Minato sends um, his, his boss Lyndon Johnson a note after the 1964 elections, and he says that if all of the senators who won and lost are present and accounted for in the new Senate, then Medicare will pass 55 to 45. So they are not even; they do not even think that they need to plan for the possibility of a filibuster. Uh, As you sort of gestured to there, Matt, in this period, the only thing that gets routinely filibustered are civil rights laws. I mean, this is why a lot of people call the filibuster a Jim Crow relic. Um, It's not true that the filibuster was invented around Jim Crow, but what is true is that the usage of the filibuster to impose a supermajority requirement on bills passing forward—sort of what what uh, Adam Gentleson would would argue in, in his book, which is coming out soon, um, called Kill Switch and is very good—um, he would call it sort of like the Rule Twenty Two filibuster, that was pioneered by the Southern bloc in the in the, the mid twentieth century, um, uh, but it was really only used on civil rights bills, and then later got picked up as party polarization accelerated by by parties. But Medicare. They didn't think Medicare would get filibustered. I mean, and back then you would have needed a two-thirds vote to break a filibuster. So they they would not be. Can you like can you imagine Medicare? It's wild. It's a totally wild it's a totally wild thing to really sit in and try to understand how differently American politics worked, you know, just a couple decades ago. Well, and then something that that I really think people
2: should appreciate, um, if they want to understand, you know, some of what you're talking about about Joe Biden's mentality, right, and his, um, uh, you know, his thinking, Democrats thinking about this, is one of the very first stories that I covered in D.C. had to do with the, um. Medicare reform that happened during George W. Bush's administration. And this was a very convoluted uh, sort of legislative saga. But the upshot of it was was that one version of a Medicare prescription drug benefit passed the House and another version passed the Senate. Uh, the one that passed the Senate had a big bipartisan majority behind it, you know, classic Senate bipartisanship filibuster leading to, to compromise, whatever. Um, and then they went to a conference committee, which You may remember from the Schoolhouse Rock video on how a bill becomes a law, but actually uh, has not been used in a long time. Um, So it's a conference committee. And everybody's sort of pre-theoretical understanding going into it was that The conference committee process was going to have to be bipartisan because the Senate bill was bipartisan and House right wing congressional people didn't like this whole idea anyway. Um, So the final legislation that emerged was expected to look more like the Senate bill, the bipartisan bill than the House bill. Uh, But it didn't. Instead, the conference committee came out with something that was quite close to the Republicans bill in the House. And Max Baucus and Zell Miller, though, defected, and they supported this in conference committee, and it wound up coming to the floor of the Senate, and it passed there with something like 54 votes. And some people thought that Democrats should filibuster it, right? Because th- they didn't have 60 votes for uh, so, there were calls for filibuster. We didn't have Twitter at the time, but if Twitter had existed, uh, left wing Twitter would have been talking about this. But Democrats didn't filibuster it. And what they said at the time was, like, well, you can't filibuster a conference report. And, you know, I was in the office and, you know, I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's not true, though, that, like, you can't filibuster a conference committee report. There's no rule that says that. It was just that. Over time, we were no longer in that like 1960 understanding of the Senate rules. but as of 2004, which was not that long ago, right the understanding was you couldn't do a filibuster that way and that is yeah, the, the
1: story of the the story of the Senate in recent decades is simply mistaking the word can't for the word didn't
2: exactly and so the the critical thing I think to understand about you know, Joe Biden, and a lot of Democratic senators, is that they were there in 2004. You know what I mean? Like, it it feels like a lifetime ago. I, if you're a young person, like, 2004 was a very long time ago. But just in political terms, it, it seems like a whole other era. But so many of our people in politics um, still come from that era, right? And to a lot of them, that was a better era. And like, it's not that far gone in the past. And so their instinct when anything happens, like in 2007, Democrats have the majority in the House and the Senate. And their idea is that they are going to pass a bunch of popular bills and either Bush will have to sign them or he'll have to veto them and look bad. Uh, But Senate Republicans just filibuster absolutely everything. And so Democrats were like, not happy about that, but their thought at the time was like, "Well, we need to go back. We need to go back to the old ways." And what you're saying is that it's only now, because of the hardball really around uh, uh, the Supreme Court seats, that Senate Democrats are giving up on the idea of of going back to a set of norms that you know were abandoned really quite recently, and that Senate Democrats themselves, I mean, if you uh, if you ask a Democrat like what happened in the judicial wars, they will say that this Garland thing was the most outrageous thing they ever saw. Um, Republicans, you know, they talk about Bork, I think pretty implausibly, Uh, but less implausibly. They say that shortly after that Medicare uh, prescription drug incident I was talking about, Democrats started filibustering some of George W. Bush's circuit court appointees. And traditionally, you hadn't seen filibuster used for that, right? And Democrats will say, well, the reason they started doing that is Republicans changed the blue slip rule, uh, which sort of let home state senators object to people. At any rate, at the time, this was seen as a real uh, norm violation by by Democrats. It's what caused Mark Tushnet to coin the phrase constitutional hardball, because everybody agreed that like you were allowed to do that. It just, you know, was one of those things that just wasn't done. But then Democrats started doing it. But they had a, even as Democrats did that, they sort of their goal was to step back from from the brink, and, and now you're saying that they're ready to give up on that.
1: Yeah. Uh, let, let's take a break, and then I want to come back and talk about the, the very particular dynamics of Supreme Court nominations in this.
0: Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash NAP. That's N-A-P-P. So I'm
1: about to make an argument that a lot of liberals don't love it when I make. Um, and I, I make this in, in, in some detail in my book, but, but but I think it's important to think about now because I want to think about for a minute the very weird space Supreme Court nominations have occupied traditionally. And so I want to phrase the question this way. What did Mitch McConnell do wrong with Merrick Garland? There is no doubt that in the 2015-2016 Senate uh, session, the single most ideologically and policy-oriented and consequential vote on a policy level was the vote um, or the non-vote over Merrick Garland. Uh, The question of whether or not the Supreme Court would, would flip from a 5-4 conservative majority to a a 5-4 liberal majority. I mean, nothing was that important. And so Merrick Garland is nominated, and he's a good, qualified, moderate nominee. He's a nominee that Obama thinks will put pressure on Republicans to confirm him because Orrin Hatch has said, um, this is the kind of nominee we should have. And what McConnell does is refuse to hold any hearings. And you could say like, and and I would say like, that's a real dirty pool. But like to go to the underlying thing here, what McConnell really does is say the Republican Party is not going to let Barack Obama fill the seat because we don't want him to. We like do not believe anybody he picks will be good. Um, we think it will hurt the things we care about, and we think our voters would not want us to fill the seat this way. And like, and and, and we're just going to fight this one out to the end. And. That is how everything in politics has worked at that point. So, like, why is that a surprise, right? McConnell stopped everything he could on every legislative project that Barack Obama ever tried. He stopped everything he could um, on every like judicial nominee, on every executive branch nominee that Obama ever tried. So, like, why is Garland a surprise? And the answer is that traditionally Supreme Court nominations were treated as non-ideological votes. And, and when I began really looking into this and studying it and reporting on it. The thing that i didn't appreciate is that there was a real logic to that for most of the 20th century which party nominated a supreme court justice did not tell you very much about how that justice would vote the parties themselves were ideologically mixed they did not have things like the federalist society that had been like loyally recruiting foot soldiers and then testing them forever to like bring them up the ranks of american politics and the pressure um, in, in, in all directions is weaker. And so you would consistently have these Democratic and Republican nominees who'd go in and just vote in a completely different way. Republican nominees would become important liberal icons on the court like Earl Warren. Democratic nominees would become conservative like Byron White. Um, I think I'm remembering who that is correctly. And, and so it kind of trade back and forth. So in this era of ideologically mixed parties, the Supreme Court nominations – it's not that the stakes are less consequential, but the ideological stakes are a lot lower. And then because of these failures, right? Because Republicans are so upset about what happens with, say, David Souter, the parties begin to figure out how to vet their as the parties polarize and become more ideologically disciplined, they begin to figure out how to vet their nominees better
2: and the interest group
1: lobbying on it be- becomes a lot yes, more intense, becomes much more intense. Right? So you, you begin to have what you what you might call like the, the end of ideological failures. You stop having like Republicans put up people who become liberals, um, Democrats put up people who become conservatives on, on the court or seen that way. And. As that happens, the court itself begins to polarize. So like Robert Bork is a good example of this, a very extreme conservative figure. Um, and Democrats reject him. Um, and, and you're still, you're still in a, in, in a transition period there because then Antonin Scalia is, um, uh, nominated to the court and, and appointed to court. I believe it's unanimous. Um, and Ginsburg is very close to that and under Clinton. But so what, what begins to happen then is these picks begin to get treated more ideologically, um, because they are ideological. And then McConnell goes all the way with that and says, we don't care about the qualifications at all. We will treat the qualifications as literally irrelevant um, and just say that the principle is we're not going to do this.
2: What, what's weird, though, I, I like your kind of like contrarian uh, defense of McConnell here. But the weird thing is that like he didn't actually say what you're saying here, right? No, He invented that's true. this fake procedural norm. And I mean, on one level, like, does it matter, right? Like, I think when people write the history books, the correct way to gloss this will be Republicans controlled the Senate and they didn't want to confirm a Democratic nominee. But like, he could have said- look, we're not going to confirm a Democratic nominee because we disagree with their judicial philosophy. Or he could have said, sure, we'll hold the vote on Garland, but we'll bring him down. Uh, But instead, he said his stated reason for not holding a vote on Garland was nothing to do with ideology. It was this thing about not confirming justices in, in an election year. And I mean, I think if you want to understand, like, the rage of Senate Democrats, um,
1: the fact that he came up with this fake reason is important there? I think that's right. So I I make that argument in my piece as well. And I totally agree with that. What I'm just saying, the the point I'm trying to make with this like semi-contrarian look at this is simply to say that the logic of the old system was actually stranger than the logic of the new one. I mean, what you're dealing with there is that for the Senate to work, and this is like my big point about this, that I want people to take away, not that McConnell's right. Like, obviously, I don't like Mitch McConnell's influence on American politics. But the big point I want people to take away Is it the Senate of yesteryear routinely demanded that senators betray their ideological commitments and restrain themselves from using the power they have to affect the outcomes they want under the rules, not under cheating, under the rules, the powers they actually held in order to keep the place working? The place did not work off of its rules. The place worked off of the ways that norms and restraint and traditions kept people from um, playing to the extent of the rules. And as those norms and restraints and like the mixed ideological coalitions that led to them have fallen, what we see, and this is the transition we we are currently in, what we see is that the, the rules of the Senate are not compatible with ideologically polarized parties. You cannot run it this way it will destroy it will either keep america from governing or it will lead to a constitutional crisis nobody can solve or an illegitimacy crisis by the way which i think is potentially very near at hand that nobody can solve and so we have a senate that i would say like in some logical way never really made any sense at all but it worked and you know what it didn't work for everybody and i think that's important to say too right like it didn't work for um african americans for most of the 20th century but it like Unto itself, the people who were in the Senate, they thought it worked. And now everybody agrees it basically just doesn't. And so what's happening is you need rules. You had norms before that reflected the composition of the Senate and the way the, the players actually acted. And you need rules now that do so. Because what McConnell figured out, which is not a crazy thing to have understood, although I like the amount of like, you know, hypocrisy and lying is very galling. But like what he just figured out is that um These are important votes and he's going to treat them the way he treats everything else as important votes and say whatever he needs to say to keep the Republican Party united on them. And I can give I've done a lot of reporting on McConnell's motivations here. The very quick version of this is that he wasn't sure he could hold Republicans if McConnell if Garland got to testify, because like then they might look at him as an individual nominee, he needed to hold them on a party vote. He couldn't let it become a a vote where individual senators are weighing individual merits. So, like, McConnell's a bad actor in a hundred ways, but he's a bad actor reflecting the obvious incentives of the system and then figuring out how to work through them. And the thing that Democrats need to do now is do the same thing, like, accept what the incentives and realities of the system are and make a Senate that works in in, in those conditions. Because asking senators to not act ideologically on vote as consequential as lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court is insane and it is not going to happen and so like I have a bunch of ideas for this like I want to de-escalate Supreme Court fights um I've been a long proponent of 18year Supreme Court terms and representative Rokana just today introduced a bill to make that the, the case and we really 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 should do that um and then everybody knows my like my like long dog and pony show at this point on getting rid of the filibuster and statehood and, and democratization. But like you need something that works and what you have is something that doesn't work. And McConnell basically acts as this like constantly showing the delta between the Senate we thought we had or pretended to have and the Senate we actually have and the politics we actually have. And like it's time for people to understand he's right, like not good, just right. He's correct about the underlying incentives here. And like the point is then to like take that seriously and figure out how to like remake the place so it works for our modern political system.
2: And I I do want to emphasize, you know, how from a conservative viewpoint, how genuinely unreasonable the proposition that because Justice Scalia died unexpectedly on a hunting trip, there was going to be a... an epical shift, right, in the ideological center of gravity of the court, and that then, you know, uh, gaming it out further, right, that had Garland been confirmed, you know, he was a a relatively moderate uh, Democratic judge, but Justice Kennedy would no longer have been the the pivotal judge, right, which he had long been. And so it really raised the prospect that he would retire in a Hillary Clinton presidency. You would now have, you know, the the 6-3 situation that Democrats are staring down the barrel could have gone the other way. And the idea that Republicans should just let that happen voluntarily, because of a unfortunate time death, you know, it it didn't, it didn't really make sense as much as like Obama always, I think, to a fault, sort of did the politics of reasonableness, like that the scenario he was proposing was fundamentally unreasonable, that like, lifelong Republican Party politicians would just give away a Supreme Court majority for no reason because it was traditional to pretend that they didn't know how, how a judge was going to vote. Um, but something um, Sam Rosenfeld, who is a, a former colleague of, of yours and mine, but also a, a leading historian of Congress, he likes to point out that traditionally it was people on the left who supported uh, what you would call majoritarian reforms in the national legislature, right? That the the predominant view of progressives was that the committee system and the filibuster and the decentralization of, of power in Congress objectively favored conservatives, right? That in essence, like very classic Congress, where you have multiple committees, uh, two separate bills, a conference committee procedure, uh, really increase the number of veto points, right? There's sort of like four veto points on paper in the US Constitution, but the old congressional procedure created like nine. Um, and and the progressive view was like, this is an impediment to reform. And exactly as you said about the the filibuster, right, the old Senate norms, they worked really well for US senators, and they worked really poorly for black Americans. And the progressive view was like, this is a problem Like we need to make the national legislature work for black people. But the problem is, is that the senators like the system, like not just the segregationist senators, but Joe Biden likes to brag about how he's friends with the segregationist senators. So like, what are we going to do? And it turns out that progressives never really solved this problem. There were some process reforms in the 70s, but it took Republicans to create the centralized leader-driven House of Representatives that progressive Democrats used to talk about, right? So it was really Tom DeLay who brought to fruition what used to be the civil rights reformers agenda for for the House. And it's Mitch McConnell who has uh, in your telling, which I think is right, at least brought the Senate closer to what it is progressives are doing. You can tell a story, right, a a, like irony of history story about the House in which, you know, things Tom DeLay did wound up being the tools that Nancy Pelosi used to get party line healthcare legislation done in the House of Representatives in a way that, that wouldn't have been possible in the old rules. The issue with the Senate, right, is that the apportionment piece also comes into play here, and that we used to have, um, not only were the parties less ideologically polarized, but the uh, spatial sorting of partisanship was not the same as it used to be. So the Senate used to have this very strong bias toward rural areas. I mean, it still does. Um, But but the, the bias toward rural areas was really important in things like votes on agricultural policy, Um, And I know you you were really into, um, you know, kind of like farm legislation stuff. And and you could really see Senate apportionment bias there. I mean, we, we all
1: have that. We all have that phase when we're younger.
2: I, I like transportation policy right and and again, like if you go back to like the Bush era surface transportation bill, there's stuff in there like really dumb stuff in there which is purely because the Senate is biased toward rural areas. but it wasn't a partisan bias right like the whole point of those things was that the farm bills and the highway bills were not partisan legislation. they were basically uh, regionalized right And so um, when when I was uh, when I was a Chuck Schumer intern, Uh, and he was a relatively junior senator, it somehow fell to him to be like the floor leader for opposition to some hideous ethanol bill uh, because... Both the Republican leaders were for it, but Tom Daschle, uh, the Democratic leader, was was also for it, uh, and he represented South Dakota. Today, it's just inconceivable that the Democratic Senate leader could be from South Dakota, uh, because not only would it be really hard for a Democrat to win a race in South Dakota, but if he did win, he would have to be such an outlier from the mainstream of the party. Like Joe Manchin is there from West Virginia, but like he can't be majority leader. Right. Like his whole proposition is that he has to stand out from from the rest of the Democrats. And to me, like I I see some people, there's a certain um, genre of person who is left of center in their views, but also likes to to really hate. Uh, The Democratic Party. And so a lot of them will be like, oh, you know, like McConnell is just like running circles around these guys. He's so good at politics and Democrats are so bad. Uh, But the reason Mitch McConnell is so good at politics is that the Senate map, you know, according to Dave Wasserman, has about a seven point skew toward Republicans. I've seen estimates as low as six and as high as nine. Uh, But that's a really big skew. It's really, really easy to be good at
1: politics when you can win. In with 47, 46% of the vote. And it's worth saying, McConnell is not actually good at politics. I, I just always want to note this. His his personal legislative record is quite poor and it's created a lot of problems for him over time. But like he didn't get Obamacare repeal done, he didn't get infrastructure done. He didn't get like so entitlement cuts done. Like there are a million things he he's very good at opposition. Like this is, I think, the, the key thing to understand about McConnell. He's a genius opposition leader. And Gina's maybe going too far, but just like he really holds his party together well in opposition. He is not a very good constructive leader. The reason judicial stuff has become the center of his whole world is it is like, it is the lowest common denominator thing where he can always hold the Republican party together and get something done precisely because he's not able to hold them together on the more complicated, um, like legislative bargaining space of actual bills. <laughs> Where he does not have a very strong record at all.
2: And also, I mean, he's just he's not good at the part of politics where you try to be popular and and win more votes than the other guys. Right? Yes. That if the if the story of the 2018 Senate midterms had been that because Democrats got far more votes than Republicans, Democrats had majority control of the Senate. Then we would be not looking at Mitch McConnell as a visionary legislative leader. We'd be saying, wow, he uh, okayed a bunch of unpopular stuff, and then he lost the election. And now Justice Ginsburg has passed away, but the seat's going to be held open, uh, just like Garland's seat was, except that they also lost the popular vote in 2016 in, in the Senate, right? So it's- And in, and in the presidency. Right. right. So he he wields power ruthlessly- and he's clear-sighted, I think. I, I, I think this is where, where where McConnell does stand out, is that he is unsentimental, right? Yes. Um, he is also an old guy who's been in the Senate for a long time, and I'm sure on some level understands why it is that other colleagues of his vintage are nostalgic for the 80s Senate, and he may feel that nostalgia in his heart, but he does not let it influence his decision-making, right? He does look at board as it exists and make the right moves, which not everybody in the Senate does. Like, they are actors who follow institutional incentives, but they are also human beings. Um, and I think, like, if you look at Democrats' behavior in 2009, I mean, part of the story is that more moderate senators, you know, really wanted bipartisan cover. But clearly, part of the story is that they overestimated themselves, you know what I mean? Like, they, they they, really thought that if they had a long enough conversation with Chuck Grassley, something, something good was going to happen. And, and they didn't want to just give up on that. So McConnell's shrewd, but he's not a great constructive policymaker, as you were saying. And he's also not popular, but he's playing hardball on this tilted playing field. And Democrats, as it happens, have an okay chance of winning a Senate majority this year. Uh, but something that, you know, I've seen uh, from 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 the bowels of the DSCC is like Democrats odds of winning a Senate majority ever again are kind of surprisingly bad. Yes.
1: If you if you run the numbers on this because of the way population is going, um, if they don't do something to like make America like more small democratic and this can include things like D.C. and Puerto Rico, they, they're just facing down a. Pretty much an endless, unbelievable deficit. I want to pick up on a couple of things you you said here, though, because I do want to um I want to note two possible objections and and consider them for a second. One is like, is this just a Democrat, is this just the Democratic narrative that, that that we're offering here? Like, are Democrats exactly as obstructionist, you know, exactly as aggressive on on rulemaking? After all, it is Harry Reid and the Democrats who in 2013, you know, nuked the filibuster on sub Supreme Court judicial nominees and on executive branch appointees. They would say, of course, that was a reflection of. Of McConnell's obstruction on those on those issues and and what I would say if you want to look at this is, Look at the difference between how Senate Democrats act in the Bush years and how Senate Republicans act in the Obama years. So Bush comes in, Democrats, a a good substantial number of them in the Senate. They work with him on the Bush tax cuts in the first round. They work with him, Matt, as you said, on the Medicare prescription drug benefit. They work with him on No Child Left Behind. Um, And even going all the way to the end of the administration, they work with him on comprehensive immigration reform, uh, which ends up failing because of a conservative revolt in, in the Senate and in the grassroots. But Senate Democrats really do not take with Bush It's just like, we are going to oppose whatever it is you offer. Then Obama comes in and like, Republicans overwhelmingly like reject him on stimulus during an economic crisis. They uh they overwhelmingly reject him uh, on on the Affordable Care Act uh, and then on just literally basically everything. So I, I think there is a real difference and that difference may to some degree reflect that that Senate lean. There are more Democrats who just have to uh, appeal to literally right of center voters right definitionally right of center voters. Um, but it's not the only thing going on there. And I think there's all kinds of interesting stuff about Democrats being more trans actionalist policy party and Republicans being a more sort of like in the political science literature, like principled ideological party and and so on. The other thing I want to touch on here is the, the fear, because I've, I've offered a bit of the optimistic version of this, but a fear around like an endless cycle of escalation, which can be a failure mode for uh, political systems, and I've heard this from from Senate Democrats who are afraid of where all this is going. I've heard it from from political scientists. So, like, imagine the world we're talking about comes into play, and Democrats come in in a year, um, and they get rid of the filibuster, and they you know add two justices to the court, and they make DC and Puerto Rico states, and then Republicans come in a couple of years later, like there's a recession, you know, in at the end of Joe Biden's term, or you know, you can, you can pick your hypothetical here. And they, I don't know, they like Mark Levine was like, we're going to break Florida into two and make Guam a state and like, had you know, had all these, like your counter hardball things. And, I think that's a real risk here. You're just going to see a kind of like an escalation of attempts to – like one thing about the rules is the rules can just be changed um, for whomever has political power. That's why to me the really important thing is to make the Senate reasonably small-day democratic and make elections count because like then the American people can weigh in. Like there are breaks here that are not simply – like how much would the senators like to control the senate like there are breaks in in terms of democracy and voters and like what people are willing to accept um and what like policy they do and don't like in terms of its outcomes uh and what people like a lot of people in states are not going to want their states broken up so i don't i don't think that there is a like a like an endless Leeway to just do whatever you want. If we get into a tit for tat, but I do think it's something at least worth considering. I mean, to me, that's why you. That's why the the fundamental question for me is always: How do you structure the incentives of a political system? Well, and I tend to think democracy is like the least bad of the incentives you can use. But you know, we are we are in a moment here where we are transitioning from a, a, a political system. That, again, to, to maybe like shorthand what we said here, like worked okay, but at the cost of racial exclusion, right? Worked okay, but as what Ian Haney-Lopez calls a heron-volk democracy. It was like a democracy for white people. Um, and then as it becomes more uh, egalitarian, begins to come under much more stress. And that's a story I tell at some, uh, at some length in, in my book, Why We're Polarized, And so like now there's this question of how do you write the rules to make a multi-ethnic democracy work? And like the thing that any political scientist who studies multi-ethnic democracies will tell you is that there are not many of them. There are some arguments that there really aren't any of them, but there are simply not many of them and they're not long running and they're just incredibly hard. Um, And so we are in a, it is worth saying like we are as a country right now facing a very difficult path to do something. At a scale no one has ever done before, which is create a functional, stable, multi-ethnic democracy of 300 million people, and 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 if people listen to you, a billion people, <laughs> and that's a really difficult that's a really difficult thing that has failure has the possibility for failure and crisis built into it, like inextricably, and it's just worth appreciating. Like that is where we are. Like that is a ta- the political task of our age. A complexity on this that that I think is worth considering is that, you know, one reason
2: the parties are not symmetrical on obstruction, I think, is that Republicans view the government stepping in to kind of like solve people's problems, you know, like coming in with, with money to stimulate the economy, for example, as a concession to political reality that you sort of reluctantly make. Right. But like their view is that like the government should not be doing a lot of stuff. To to help people out with with, with their lives, Uh, whereas Democrats feel cross-pressured, right? Like when Trump comes to them and is like, hey, like we got to get the economy going. Like on the one hand, you know, Democrats are not so naive as to not see that like Trump would like to win the election and he wants to run on a a strong economy, but also like stepping in with programs, right? Like dreaming up this $600 unemployment insurance or the special pandemic unemployment assistance program like that. It's what Democrats um, feel they're here to do in the legislature. So just saying no, like, doesn't it, it, it doesn't suit them? Like, it's not it's not what they think would be proper. Uh, whereas Republicans are like, a Obama wants to spend a bunch of money on stuff. B he wants to do it to boost the economy, which will help him. And so that's like you know they don't they don't want to do either of those things. The flip side is that Democrats, I think, get reluctant to do um, hardball measures, affirmative hardball measures that will let them legislate more. Because a lot of Democratic members of Congress don't identify with progressive political activists, right? Like they see their role as being honest brokers between what the left wants and sort of what they would call political reality. Right. So what they need is for there to be a a reasonable Republican who comes to the table and then they can be the crafters of high minded compromise. Right. So like the theory of the Affordable Care Act was that we're going to use like these market mechanisms to achieve the progressive dream of universal health care. And it wound up being, I think, like a little embarrassing to the architects of that program that they couldn't get any Republican votes for it. Because it meant at the end of the day that they had to admit that they themselves were the ones who wanted to rely on market mechanisms and the private health insurance system. That, like, there there was nobody other than moderate Democrats to insist on those things. And they wound up insisting on them. But the place they're more comfortable operating in is we brilliantly struck this deal with Orrin Hatch. So here you go, right? They're supposed to be like legislative maestros. And if you get in a situation where you just say, fuck it, we've got the votes. Puerto Rico's a state, DC's a state, US Virgin Islands are a state, you know, maybe Guam's a state. And now we're just like, we are going to write the labor law that we think America should have, right? Like we are going to make unions Be like, we we don't have any reason to say no to you other than we are saying no. And that's a position that it seems to be Democrats tend to be uncomfortable with, right? Just articulating the idea that I disagree with some of the interest groups on my side, and that's why I'm not going to do it. So they like to have these sort of hoops and hurdles in their way. Um, One of the funniest things that ever happened was like, when 60 Democrats all said they were going to vote for the Employee Free Choice Act during the 2008 elections. And then Democrats did better than they were expecting to. So suddenly they had 60 votes for this bill and they had to like embarrassingly admit a bunch of them that they didn't actually want to vote for it. And it and it wound up not happening. And that's, you know, that's something that I that I wonder about. Right. Like Biden has a, you know, a a substantive policy agenda that will not be enacted uh, unless they get rid of the filibuster. But it's also much more moderate than what a lot of people on the left would, would like to see him do. And, you know, so he still maintains this idea that he's going to, like, have a bourbon with eight reasonable Republicans and get something done. And, like, I don't think that's true. And I hope he doesn't think it's true. But it's definitely the kind of operation that he's most comfortable with.
1: So uh, there's only one place I want to add an addendum here which is that the analysis you just offered is true for republicans too. And and in a very important way that relates to why senators like the current construction of the US Senate. As you mentioned the Employee Free Choice Act which is like one of the great recent betrayals in America in 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 democratic politics there were a lot of Democrats who had signed into that open letter. And then as soon as it seemed they were playing with like live legislative ammunition, like actually no. And people often ask the question of like, well, if Mitch McConnell is so ruthless, why hasn't he gotten rid of the filibuster? And the answer is that he doesn't want to. He and the Republicans who are um, like, and Mitch McConnell's literal job is to mediate between parts of the party that often don't like each other um, and this is like something that's been very stressful for him that he, you know, he fought really hard to have this other guy, I think is it was Grayson was his name, Trey Grayson maybe, beat Rand Paul in the Kentucky Senate primary. and then Rand Paul won. And like that was a huge humiliation for Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell then takes on Rand Paul's campaign manager as Mitch McConnell's own campaign manager in his next election in order to forestall a Tea Party challenge to him. Um, then there's leaked audio that comes out where Mitch McConnell's campaign manager, who's a Tea Party guy who worked for Rand Paul again, says he's holding his nose to work for Mitch McConnell. And like Mitch McConnell and this guy take a picture where like McConnell's got a, an arm around him and this guy's holding his nose. But, like it, it, and it's like ha ha ha. But like, no, actually, it's super humiliating. <laughs> um, and they were just trying to trying to laugh it off. So Point is, there's a lot that Republican, the, the sort of Republican base wants to do that Mitch McConnell never wants to take a vote on. Now, when there was something they wanted to do that he wanted to take a vote on, which in this case um, was confirming Neil Gorsuch to the Supreme Court, they got rid of the Supreme Court filibuster in two seconds because they wanted to play with live ammunition. Like, they wanted to confirm that guy to the court, um, as, just as later on they wanted to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the court. Uh, But they don't want to vote on anything House Republicans send them, just like whatever it is House Republicans can pass. And they don't want to have to fulfill a bunch of their promises, in particular, I think, to social conservatives. Uh, We talked about this a bit in the filibuster episode a few weeks back. And I mean, that's a little bit true for Democrats too, but it's a way in which I think the Senate protects itself rather than the country. Yeah, it's going to be awkward as a politician to have to tell people that you don't want to do the thing they want you to do. Like, that is an awkward thing. Like, you saw a bunch of Democrats struggle with this in the primary this year, um, or I guess last year, partially, where they had – like, they wanted to take over some of, like, Bernie Sanders' space in the primary. And so they signed on to his Medicare for All bill. But then, like, Bernie Sanders actually did run again. And then they were getting a lot of questions on the unpopular parts of that bill. And then it turned out that a bunch of them, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, um, among others, like didn't really support that bill. They just wanted to say to liberal activists, like, yeah, we're, we're, we're with you. Um, and so, like that's fine, I guess it's politics, and 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 both sides can do it. But like the filibuster and the completely undemocratic nature of the U.S. Senate allows them to have this just unbelievable delta between what they have said they support and what they actually support. And one reason it survives is they like that—that that plausible deniability that oh, we would have loved to pass this for you, but you know, Senate rules that you can't do anything about. Like the God gave them down from Mount Sinai, kept us from doing it. Uh, and that's true for McConnell, too. It's not the case, I think, that McConnell's kept the filibuster because he's like such a good guy who loves the Senate. It's a case that he understands that the right wing of his own party is nuts. Their agenda is unbelievably unpopular, but they're also really powerful in his party. And he is afraid of what happens if he does not have that rule to hold them back.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that. that's exactly I, I think, you know, before we, we end this episode, um, I, I do have, you know, my mental model of Ross Douthat on my shoulder, who is telling me that the thing smart conservatives say about all of this is that it's not so long ago that Democrats had a majority in the Senate, and even not so long ago that the Senate wasn't seen as having a partisan bias. So maybe the problem is just this sort of Post Obama or you know Obama's second term partisan alignment and liberals should stop whining on our podcasts you know and just kind of get more get more John Tester energy up there in in our candidate recruitment and maybe even this would create a healthier you know less polarized because because you put this all as like a downstream consequence of sort of demographic polarization of the parties but maybe. If Democrats said to themselves, okay, what's an electoral coalition that gets us to a neutral Senate? That means, you know, we need to be more culturally conservative, uh, probably particularly on sort of gender related issues. And we will lose votes among, you know, educated, uh, sort of upscale people, but maybe we'll do better uh, with rural working class people. And so, you know, what's what's wrong with that?
1: So my question to my friend Ross on this point, which I've seen him making recently, although I will say it's a good column today sort of making my argument that the crisis is needed. But my question for my friend Ross on this is, Okay, Democrats are actually literally running that strategy. That is called nominating Joe Biden for president. And if they nominate Joe Biden for president and they win an election in which they actually do a little bit better among, say, older white seniors, like, Are they going to have cooperation to govern in the Senate from Republicans? And I think the answer we all know with 100% certainty is, of course not. The issue is not that Republicans are going to stop Joe Biden from, like— Making it so no government forum ever asks about gender again. The issues is that they're going to stop Joe Biden from expanding health care. They're going to stop Joe Biden from passing an opioids bill. They're going to stop Joe Biden from passing pre-K. They're going to stop Joe Biden from making all kinds of, by the way, the working family tax changes that Ross and Raihan put in in Grand Old Party uh, years ago. Unless Joe Biden basically abuses the rules of the U.S. Senate and uses budget reconciliation to do it. So. You can talk all you want about how you can construct different coalitions in American politics. I will also just say, like, I am not super friendly to the idea that we should just endlessly accept the system's unbelievably heavy bias towards white people. Um, Ross's colleague at the Times, David Leonhardt, did this calculation uh, a couple months back where he said, and I'm I'm running these numbers a little bit from memory, so I could get them wrong, um, but white people have... 0.36 0.36 senators per million people. Black people, something like 0.26 or 0.23, and Hispanics down in the teens. So there's a real difference in the power the Senate gives the different races. And the idea that just gives like endlessly white people more power, given that the power we've traditionally wielded, doesn't seem great to me. Um, and so the idea of like DC and Puerto Rico, I really wonder if DC and Puerto Rico were majority white places if they would be disenfranchised for this long. And I think the answer is no. Um like you know non-Hispanic white, like if Puerto Rico was next to Idaho and had Idaho's demographics, I think it would be a state.
2: I mean there's there's pretty
1: good evidence for
2: that from the, the history of New Mexico.
1: Yes. I think this is just not a path to a just Senate. I think the I think the Ross thing that he will say and he does say is that Democrats got too used to the Supreme Court taking issues out of Democratic Contestation and just like assigning them a constitutional status that can't be broken. So, like Ross's big argument is that abortion was pulled out of like democratic small D democratic politics. And then like over the past couple of years, so was gay marriage, and more recently, um uh discrimination based on on, on gender. And that, like, that is a thing that, you know, maybe Democrats are right about democracy, but it can't just be democracy for, like, their bread and butter issues. It's going to have to be democracy for issues that, like, are around equality, too. And, like, that is the crisis Republicans are forcing here. He's got a column today, I think it was. It's just like, there are kind of two crises here that, like, maybe Democrats are right. You need to, like, have more actual, like, democracy in the legislature. Um, but maybe Republicans are right that not so much should be taken out of democracy by the courts. Um, I don't think it's really a principle. Take Republicans are going to play. They're like, for instance, trying to end Obamacare in the courts. but i can I can see I can see your argument on that that we should simply have a weaker Supreme Court and a much more powerful Congress, but the Congress needs to actually represent the country as it exists,
2: yeah. I mean, I actually think. Both of these points of his actually point to the idea that Democrats should be fairly extreme uh, in their behavior if they are fortunate enough to win in in 2020, because it's, of course, true that I, I think to an extent, the way Democrats uh, in the Senate played the 2018 midterms was just a, a tactical error. You know, it's like they knew the map was really bad, and then they just kind of acted like they didn't know that. Um, And, you know, Heidi Heitkamp was going to behave with sort of resistance liberal sensibilities, even though like obviously North Dakota didn't. Support that, but the fact of the matter is, like that also tells you something, right? Like Donald Trump was very unpopular throughout 2017, 2018. Uh, he won with a minuscule share of the vote. He immediately betrayed a number of his most popular promises. Democrats won in the House with like a huge sweeping majority, um, and it, it might have been tactically sounder for Democrats to conform themselves more to the map, but that would have been an incredible betrayal of the American people, right? And so the strategy, the long-term strategy of conforming politics to the map is going to be really tough on African Americans. It's going to be tough on Latinos. I think I think, in some ways, most proximately in coming years, it'll be very tough on trans people, you know, because that's a real issue that is it's it's so heavily loaded on, on the urban-rural divide, right? Uh, some of these issues related to sexuality and gender and, and, and gender difference and, and things like that. And there's just no good reason that people should have their legitimate interests permanently neglected by the political system. But that means that if Democrats win and they have the chance to change it, like they gotta go, like they need to do it, right? And they need to say that they are doing it, for reasons of fairness and political equality not as some like tit for tat game uh because it, it even if it, in some senators individual psychology it is a tit for tat game it's like actually an important question of principle and it needs to be seen that way. And I also think, you know, these points about democracy and the judiciary, they cut in favor of court packing uh, because people will say, well, this is a slippery slope and everyone's going to do this all the time. Uh, But the reality is that like concurrent majorities are relatively rare. Really big, unpopular Supreme Court decisions are also relatively rare. So even if everybody, quote unquote, packs the courts each time they control the House and the Senate and the White House at the same time that the Supreme Court hands down a decision that they really don't like and that is also unpopular, that's not something you would expect to see happen all that frequently, right? And the expected behavioral reaction of the Supreme Court is just to be a little bit more careful with public opinion right? So probably no Citizens United decision, possibly no Roe v. Wade, right? Uh, Under those those kind of rules, you'd be more guarded. Um, But the Supreme Court makes tons of rulings. Uh, There's divided government all the time. And bringing more issues closer to popular contestation you know, I think it's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm, I was very glad that the uh, Obergefell ruling came down, the, the, the marriage equality case. But also on a political level, it was like, you could both see why conservatives were frustrated to lose that way in the courts rather than the legislatures. But also from a political standpoint, it's like created this weird out for social conservatives who hold this like incredibly unpopular discriminatory view. And they never they never had to either like admit that they're wrong or face defeat over it. Like marriage equality was becoming popular. And then Justice Kennedy sort of, to to my mind, like saved Republicans bacon by by just snatching it out. And, you know, I think I think Democrats should proceed fairly fearlessly uh, on these kind of fronts, um, which I guess we're just going to agree on.
1: Anyway, I hope Diane Feinstein is listening to this episode of the Weeds. Is all I can say.
2: Yeah, she loves podcasts. Uh, so we, we bring this up because uh, Di- what, what did Diane Feinstein say?
1: She said something about how she wants to keep the filibuster. But but to your to the point you're making earlier, and and we should wrap is that Diane Feinstein really represents like the older guard of Democratic senators. Who she represents a very liberal state. It's getting very screwed by the way by the by the U.S. Senate um, in, in composition. Um, and she wants to change nothing because she remembers the Senate as it used to be, you know, twenty years ago, and and would like it to look like that. Um, and it's simply small C conservative on that. And and I have some boy, I have I have I really do have some sympathy for the position. But a lot for a lot of people, it's not an abstraction. Like a lot of people are going to live in a warming world. They're going to lose their rights. They're going to lose their health care. They're not going to get health care. Um, their country is going to keep falling into like. Further levels of disrepair and, and 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 it's just wild. And so, like, it's one thing for Joe Manchin representing like West Virginia, one of the most pro-Trump states in the union, to really try to walk this line in a super careful way. But Diane Feinstein representing California is like insane. Um and so, uh, but but maybe she's a big weeds listener and uh this this episode will have convinced her that democracy is actually important and that California um should have say like more of a voice and should, in in the US Senate. Um it, the whole thing is wild. I'm I'm, I'm very frustrated at Diane Feinstein right now.
2: Yes. Well with luck at least some uh staffers will hear this and can come up with some some new talking points to yell at her with um so okay thanks ezra uh thanks uh senator feinstein if you are listening uh thanks as always to our sponsors our producer jeffrey geld and the weeds will be back on tuesday